0: into the Theology Pit. Well, hey, hey, hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit. And You know what we say here. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you will die of dehydration. Before you die of starvation, of course. Um, Theology Pit has been a concept that I came up with uh, years ago. To have a place where you could discuss theology in what's called an ironic way, which means that we try to accurately represent all views, even if we're opposed to them, because the best way to really understand uh, what's going on within Christianity, what's going on within theology and how God works is ultimately to have an understanding of what people thought before. What we don't want to do is create what's called a straw man argument. And that's an argument where we we deliver an argument that honestly nobody holds. It loosely looks like somebody else. It loosely looks like a different view. And then we totally beat up that argument that nobody truly holds. And then we act like, hey, we did something you know kind of great when we haven't. That's what we don't want to do here. That's why with with all of these views, if you've noticed, um, I do my best to try to represent them. And we're going to be coming up with some views later on in probably the next couple weeks. And I'm already starting uh, my, my studies on them and my discussions with other people and talking. I'm, you know, kind of planning them out. Um, last week, of course, wasn't very well planned. It was just me thinking about my own views and challenging them since we were on this idea of the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement now the view that I put forth in it and what I was talking about with the sacraments is not the only view of the vicarious substitutionary atonement that's kind of an umbrella um, I I guess word or code or whatever you want to say it's it's like an umbrella statement um, over a, a lot of Protestantism but there's different kinds of it. I lean more towards the Lutheran, maybe Lutheran in the middle, Lutheran Calvin, I don't know. But today, uh, we're going to be talking about the Swiss Reformation. We've been talking a lot about the German Reformation. We talked a little bit about the Swiss Reformation, but not too much. We're going to be getting into that a little bit more and those key players, because at this time with Luther and what was going on, he wasn't the only one. So we're going to take a look at what, you know, um, Calvin had to say and Erick Zwingli. So once again, we are traveling back in time, of course, and we're still sitting in the 1500s here, Um, 16th century. Most of this stuff that we're going to talk about today and these ideas uh, were going on in the 16th century now you have to understand what's what's happening here luther like blows the door wide open for this whole understanding of some type of forensic declaration that um, salvation is what's called monergistic okay which means you know god alone it's just god alone well monergistic means to you know to work alone but um, It's basically the view that when it comes to justification, and, you know, we kind of look at salvation as a whole, but when it comes to justification particularly, it's all God. And by doing that, what it does is it strips this power from the magisterial authority, the church. And it's not because, you know, the, the power was stripped from the church because it was bad or it was evil or it needed to be stripped. It was stripped because it was just seen as unnecessary. Now, if you wanted to hold to these traditions, if you wanted to hold to, um, you know, the idea of the sacraments and going to mass and, you know, God's grace being infused within you rather than um, imputed to you. Uh, Some of the reformers didn't have a problem with that. Some of these reformers had a big problem with it. And it's mostly the Swiss, okay? And the French Swiss, uh, as it was called because of the border disputes, of course, you know, countries uh, have different borders back then than what they do today. Um. You remember what was going on at this time with the scholastics and with the humanists and with the universities and and all that study and everything, and how they kind of split from Luther pretty early on, because whenever Luther was making his argument of justification by faith alone, and you know defining the difference between the um you know what well, we discussed that the difference between the fides qua creditor and the fides qua creditor and uh, what All of this made and how, you know, really what's on your own conscience and you can't go against that. I mean, he gave that uh, speech at the the Diet of Worms. I encourage you to look it up. It's not very long. Well, because of this, he was saying that, you know, popes have erred. And the humanists were like, yeah, heck yeah, they have. That's why it should be the councils in charge of putting a pope in place. We should have votes on it. Uh, learned men should come in. We should vote on it. We should put the pope in place. And, you know, you saw what happened with that when you had, you know, three popes at one time for a while. And then, you know, the councils themselves... uh Started getting an error because they wanted to do it again after they got rid of the three popes and put in, you know, another pope. And then they didn't like what he was doing. So they were like, well, we're going to throw together a council and we're going to do this. And, you know, the rule was already made that only a pope can call a council together. And so they said, no, you can't. But the people were just totally weary of of what was going on and just, you know, annoyed. You remember the story from uh, a few uh, theology pits ago. And because of that, you know, the, 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 the councils kind of lost their power in that sense. And then the popes started stacking the deck with cardinals. So when they called a council, it was a council that was called with the deck stacked. But this whole idea of God's people coming together and making a decision— and that the Holy Spirit being with them. And that God is blessing that council and leading that council. That's still the concept that's held today. Uh, and it's not just in Roman Catholic churches. I mean, of course, the Roman Catholic churches do hold that concept with, you know, the Pope calling a council and the council speaking. Uh, council of Trent is a perfect example of that. But um, Protestants... A lot of Protestant churches will hold to that. There will be congregational meetings uh, depending on what the background of the church is, which makes it very interesting because Luther saying no, this sort of thing is not led by God. So the humanists who and the scholastics who were the part of the university in paris um You know, a lot of the major universities were like this. Um, They were like, no, this is the way things have to be done. Okay, so this is the mindset of the Swiss reformers, of the, you know, John Calvin and uh, Erg Zwingli. And they were thinking, uh, this is their philosophy. Okay, that the councils come together. And, and what's the argument for it? I mean, a lot of churches do this. So what's the argument for it, Sam? Why don't you tell us? All right, I'll tell you. Whenever you get together, the Holy Spirit is said to be, he's said to be fully represented. Okay? The way that this happens is by spiritual gifts. I might have one spiritual gift, maybe two. You might have a spiritual gift that I don't possess. And somebody else might have one that neither of us do. But when we get together as a body, all of the spiritual gifts are there present. And if we're all thinking on one accord and voting on one accord, it's showing evidence of the Holy Spirit being a, a cause agent, being a, an, an influencer, a leader, leading his people. And by doing so, God's will is then done within that body, within that church. Now, in scripture, it talks about um, where, you know, two or more gathered in my name, there I am also. Uh, That doesn't have to do with Prayer, or just prayer, I should say, anything like that. Actually, the the context of that that scripture, I think it's in, uh, I think it's somewhere in Matthew. Um, that has to do with kicking somebody out of the church and going together as, as a group. You go to that person by yourself if they don't listen. You take two or three if they don't listen to them. You take the elders of the church, and if they don't listen, you know they're going in front of the whole church, and uh, you know if they don't listen to that, then you know they're to be. Excommunicated, they're to be kicked out, and where two or three or you know, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. So, there is a rationale for why this sort of thing takes place. Now, the German Reformation and the Germans stayed very Lutheran, okay, because Luther had such a huge influence, Luther had like this world influence, but the Swiss. You had Erig uh, Zwingli who came up. He was, of course, a priest, and you know he was seeing what was going on at the same time that uh, that Luther was. So I think they were born the same year. Uh, they had this. I mean, the the worldview evidence of what was going on with the church and with the state and everything. I mean, it was common knowledge. This wasn't something that. Only if you had access to, you know, a good library and good books could you find out about. This was something that everybody knew about. It's commonplace. It's just like like politics today, you know, and, and what's going on with the state and what's going on in, um, you know, your local neighborhoods and stuff like that. And we talked about the uh, population and the whole thing with the bubonic plague. Um, Zwingli was uh, affected by the bubonic plague. Um, actually he, he survived it, but was, uh, was sick from it. He was assisting people, helping people who, who had it, but, um, they're seeing, you know, the whole thing with, with the, with the bad priests. Okay. Of course, celibacy was something that was thrust on the priests. So a lot of priests, and you could call this, I suppose, civil disobedience, but, yeah more or less you know it kind of was with them but honestly the priests were not very i guess what we call priestly or very uh, you know christianly in in the sense of taking their orders seriously and they had children and they had to pay a fine for each child that they had And some of them were just racking up and they didn't care because they'd pay them. They were, you know, doing other jobs or they were on the take or something like that would happen. And, you know, because of this, they also had a lot of concubines and they were getting these concubines all pregnant, you know, and people knew about it. But a lot of people, including um, the people in the magisterial authority, kind of turned their heads to it because they understand what it's like. I mean, forced celibacy is an unnatural thing. Okay, it's it's. I think it's something that the Roman Church has always struggled with. I've talked to a lot of Roman Catholics in my life, and on this subject, they say they should just let the priests marry, you know. And I understand why they don't. And I understand why they, you know, why why you know priests should marry and why they shouldn't marry. Um, that's a different pit. That's a totally different discussion. But um, at this time, you know, they have all these concubines. They're having all these children everywhere. People are kind of you know looking the other way. But it certainly doesn't help um, the the problem that they're seeing. And some of the things that they're trying to reform, what the church itself wants to reform, not what the reformers are doing, but the it's not the Roman Catholic Church yet, but we'll just call it the Roman Catholic Church. They want to reform this bad morality, this bad behavior. You had a lot of these guys that we talked about that you know, came up beforehand who were just like, hey... Something needs to be done The uh, morality is bad And that's of course going to spill over to the lay people And you know It's, it, it's going to be problematic So You know Zwingli's Seeing this stuff And he's uh, a- attending the University of Basel Which is a, a center for learning And he was Attending it in 1505 Okay and he was listening To uh, lectures by uh, Thomas Wittenbach, who lectured there from 1505 to 1508. And Zwingli's timeline, if, if you kind of want it for like his, you know, Reformation, uh, what's what's credited to him in the Swiss Reformation is from 1516 to 1531. Um, 1517 is when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. Um, so Luther had some influence on Zwingli. Not not a ton. Um I think that Zwingli had like zero influence on on Luther to be honest. I mean he may have gotten to think, but it it wasn't like Luther was studying Zwingli's thing. Luther, when you look back through theological history, is a giant uh when it comes to theology, when it comes to his writings and that sort of thing. John Calvin came um after uh, from 1531 to 1564. And John Calvin is, let's see, to to Zwingli, John Calvin was a much better theologian. Uh, He was a better organizer and uh, disciplinarian of the Reformed Church. Not that, you know, he's a heavy-handed, like, you know, whipping people or anything. But when it came to discipling people, when it came to, um, didactically teaching, and the way to you know live your life, the things to strive to. Uh, this is why I think Calvin overshadows Zwingli. Even though a lot of what Zwingli did paved the way, it's like Zwingli was kind of the architect of the Swiss Reformation. He was kind of putting up the the foundation structure, the building, everything like that. Uh, Calvin came in and put up all the aesthetics and the plumbing and electricity and everything that really made it work well. And, um, you know, Calvin was a great theologian in his own right. Um, not my favorite theologian, but very influential. Um, I've read through his, uh, institutes. It's extremely long. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because if you know anything about Calvinism, before we even get into the concept of Calvinism, you read through the Institutes and you would sit there and ask yourself, would Calvin be a Calvinist today? A lot of people would say, oh, probably not. Um, he, he may be a soft Calvinist, but uh, he, he wouldn't hold to. It. And it's interesting whenever you have somebody that has set their theology down, set their Beliefs down, argued for, written about those sort of things, and then the people who come up after them that that take that second generation um, that think that they can improve on it, and they might take it too far in a direction where it was never intended to go. That's honestly that's what I see when I when I look at Calvinism today. Uh, I look at Calvinism. I look at things like the Westminster Confession. I know this is going to make people mad whenever I say this, but to me. It looks like something that a know-it-all first-semester freshman college student would write. Somebody who just thinks that, hey, I'm halfway through my first semester in college and I know everything. And I'm going to write it out. And that's why I think that the Westminster Confession, as, as nice of a summary as it is in a lot of points, is disjointed. But there's there's reasons for it. It's disjointment. And it's because of the views that I hold being uh, leaning a little more Lutheran that I look at that and saying, ah, oh, they didn't quite get this and we'll, you know, when, especially when it comes to uh, the doctrine of justification and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later today. So, um, Luther, well, I should, I should also say that, um, that, uh, Calvin, uh, was a lot closer to Luther's understanding of the Lord's supper than Zwingli was. um, Luther held to what's called... Okay, well, let's back up here. The Roman Catholic Church holds to what's called transubstantiation, that when the words of consecration are said at Holy Mass that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ, The what's called the accidents remain the same, Okay, which is that it's the appearance of bread and wine, but the substance, what it truly is, that's what transforms into the body and blood of Christ. Um this whole thing with accidents and um, uh, substance, uh, substantia, that's what, where, it's where you get transubstantiation, transforming the substance. Um, this is using um, Aristilian language, philosophy, and that's why a lot of people push back against it immediately. They're like, these concepts that you're getting from are, you know, from non-Christian, ultimately pagan sources, so therefore, by association, it's wrong. I don't quite agree with that type of argumentation. Uh, it's that's a I'm trying to think of the gene- the argumentative fallacy. It is. I think it's called the genetic fallacy, and that's uh, where something comes from. That's why it's wrong. It's not. It's not that you are looking at something or weighing it based on its own merits, but just where it comes from. Um, you know, for example, you could say, all, you know, I don't, I don't know, all people from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania are liars. Therefore, anything that comes from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is a lie. And somebody could say, well, what about the sky being blue? That's a lie. I mean, you know, just because of where it comes from. He also, uh, well, I should continue on with that. Uh, Luther then held to um, consubstantiation, which meant that there is no transformation that occurs. Okay, it's bread and it's wine, all right? But along with it, the con being along with the substance, the spirit of Christ, the the body and blood of Christ is with it, through it, under it, all around it. But if you put it under a microscope, it's bread and wine. That's all it is. It's not transforming in the same way that you don't have Jesus walking around, in an Apollinarian sense of God in a bod, a God mind in a human body. That what it meant with the hypostatic union is that, you know, underneath the substance there, you know, is is the dwelling of the second person of the Trinity. Okay. And it's not that the two natures commingled in a uh, monophysitist. Uh, understanding that you had this humine thing walking around. It's that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In that way, consubstantiation is saying, no, this is bread and wine and this is the body and blood of Christ. Okay. I mean, and that's why it's thrown up as, as a mystery, but because of that, you are actually partaking of the body and blood of Christ in a Lutheran church. The ELCA a little more relaxed on their emphasis on it during communion. The Missouri Synod, which is the much more conservative aspect of, of uh, Lutheranism, is very upfront about that. Um, the one Missouri Synod church that I went to, uh, when it came time for communion, they had a card. Explaining exactly what it was sitting in the pews uh, right right in front of you so you could read and understand what it was and if you were a visitor if you wanted to take communion you had to sign that card saying that you agree with what this is everybody of course was welcome at the table in matter if you were a Lutheran or not but what you had to do is you had to acknowledge and hold to this being the body and blood of Christ Calvin well, I should go to Zwingli first because he was he was first with this. Zwingli said, no, it's just a memorial. That's all that it is. It's just bread and wine. There is nothing supernatural about it. It's what we do in order to just remember what Christ has done. Okay, the broken body and the shed blood. That's all that it is. Okay, nothing more than that. Because ultimately, if we are justified forensically by God saying it and we have all of our grace, we have all the grace that's been given to us, our salvation right here. What's the point of this? And I, I think I talked about that last week with my own, you know, problems with uh, my own views. What's the point in having that sort of thing which gives the illusion, if not the blatant statement of a sanative understanding of justification or gratia infusa, grace being infused within you? And then that's what's what's changing you. How can you say that grace is this and it's that? Where, you know, Where do you get that from and how do you separate it? There's... Really, no way. It's just you're separating it out of convenience and not actually separating it and looking at it. John Calvin, on the other hand, he looked at it and, uh, and, and kind of he was closer to, to Luther. He was splitting the difference between that. And he went with something um, where he said, look, it's, it's more of a spiritual Thing that's going on We are, it's just bread and wine But we are being nourished Spiritually, okay, by remembering uh, The body and blood of Christ And by us saying That this is the body and blood of Christ Even though we know that it's not But just that remembrance That that is uh, spiritually Feeding us and, and Nourishing us So in that sense that there was This spiritual aspect to it more than just a community aspect to it, which is what uh, Zwingli would hold. Uh, That's what put um, Calvin closer to Luther in that way. Calvin also widened the concept of predestination. Now, predestination, you know, we talked about that with election, but we didn't get into the nitty gritty of it. And this is going to be a really, really big deal in the next, oh, what, 100 years, 150 years that we're talking about right now. I would even say in the next hundred years from, from this point, because you have a lot of problems with, with this understanding of predestination. And if you say that predestination is like a, a general call or predestination is a, an exact call or, you know, what it was. And we went over the, um, the uh, uh superlapsarianism the sublapsarianism and the infralapsarianism uh, a few pits ago and just to kind of remind you of 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 what it was and um what what was going on because this was part of you know what was being taught and what was being uh talked about now these are going to have the name calvinism attached to them but it's not necessarily what john calvin hold. it's just when people thought about you know where it Uh, where it goes to, where it comes from. And um, superlapsarianism is known as hyper-Calvinism. And this is the idea where if you say that God is in control of everything, okay, meticulous sovereignty, he controls every single little thing, then the problem that you have is God has predestined people to heaven and predestined people to hell. He has created people just to go to hell. And the problem that people have with that concept is that ultimately they would say it's making God the author of evil, you know, and, and God becomes a, a moral monster. He's he's worse than Satan. Uh, he is creating people just for them to go to hell, you know, even, even if he has the ability to save them. And then, you know, and... We'll get more into that when we get into Arminianism and the objections that Arminianism has to Calvinism. We'll talk more uh, about this. The sublapsarianism is what's called the single predestination, that all of mankind was uh, fallen. And God made a way through Christ for people to be saved. And before the foundation of the world, he had chosen who was going to be saved and who wasn't. And the difference here is that he's not sending people to hell. He's not creating people to go to hell. He is electing people to not go to hell. Okay, everybody is on their way, and he is just plucking things out um, because of his, his, his foreknowledge or his love and the um infralapsarian would say no the only one who is elect who is predestined is Christ and everyone who is found in him they then become the elect and it that you know looks a little bit more like uh, old testament stuff but we'll get into that um more later on when we discuss uh, Jacob arminius and his objections to calvinism now luther was probably more of a uh, sublapsarian that he would say, you know, the um, everybody's on their way to hell, but God uh, predestines certain people. He may even slip a little bit into the uh, infralapsarianism, but Philip Melanchthon, who came after him, who was, uh, you yeah, took up the leadership roles after he died. I've always called him the great, uh, compromiser because that's what he is he actually he, he went into a uh super lapsarianism a double predestination and kind of you know pushed that envelope and you know that more or less separated um him and uh calvin's understanding he went a lot more uh roman catholic with a lot of his stuff than what uh calvin did now luther had a lot of influence over germany and scandinavia and the reform movement here of zwingli and calvin had a lot of influence over great britain and north america and if if you want to know about the founding of the united states of america and why our constitution is written the way that it is and why we have a Congress and branches of government and um, church state separation and all this stuff. This is the time period that you need to study. And these are the men that you need to study uh, Zwingli and uh, Calvin, because it's out of this scholastic world, out of this humanist world, out of this concept of uh, congregational, rule for the church and ultimately with the church-state relationship of there being a free state and a free church and that, you know, people, Christians, when they come together and they agree on something, God blessing, that, that whole concept, that's the philosophy that led to the founding and organization ultimately of the United States of America and the Revolutionary War and when When our forefathers said that they wanted to form a more perfect union, the whole concept of the United States governmental system finds its roots right back here. It actually you know goes back to the ad fonts to the the scholastics when you're talking you know fourteenth century, fifteenth century but it's it's solidifying. In the sixteenth century here with um, these church governments that are coming up from the reform period, um, not so much the Lutheran but much more the reform so when people say that we're not a Christian nation it's like well, yes and no, we are not a theocracy, we never were set up to be a theocracy and we'll you know we'll get to some of the the reasons why in in, in today 's talk, but you we are definitely set up on a Presbyterian model. Um, I think pejoratively at one point in our history when you know the revolution was going on, um, we were called a Presbyterian nation uh, by, uh, by the British. So this government that we have is set up on the base that it is going to be run by people who are of the reformed faith and understand this or at least understand the reformed faith and the importance of it because they can look back at history and say look at the other ways that you know things have happened it's not going to work and so they did it this way and say this is the way that we should do it this is what god wants this is god's blessing the law is is made for the lawless okay if you Are part of a self-governing organization or self-governing religion um, where there's a lot of accountability and there's, I don't want to say a lot of rules, but there's a lot of personal responsibility and personal freedom put in place. Like you get from this reform doctrine. Then those type of people are not going to break the law. You don't have to worry about it. You don't need a ton of laws. You don't need a ton of regulations. You don't need a ton of overbearing government. You don't need a ton of law enforcement. You don't need because people are self-governing. When you get people away from that worldview of a reformed understanding, and you allow them to just say everything's relative and it doesn't matter, that's what erodes this type of governmental system. So, you know, if, you're, if you've always wondered why is the United States set up the way that it is and why do Christians jump up and down about this being a Christian nation and stuff, this is the time period to go study and this is what to, what to look at. Now, there are three fundamental principles that Luther and Calvin uh, and, and Zwingli, I should say, the Lutheran and the Reformed held to. And the first of these was um, that Scripture is... Uh, is seen as a rule of faith and practice. And a lot of times you see that in churches today in their statements of faith that we believe that it is the some would say the only infallible rule of you know, for faith and practice. it's it's the the guideline. Uh, some Protestant churches say that um, Lutherans may not, but some some would. Um, Roman Catholics most, most definitely do not. That's, that's much more of a sola scriptura view, and they would be much more sola ecclesia, or the church alone, rather than uh, scripture alone. But the church alone, I'm saying that, and that sounds pejorative, because they do have two poles, the scripture and, and tradition. But that's a whole other pit all on itself. Um, the second one is justification by uh, free grace through faith. That's another thing that they held to. And we'll go through the nuances of that, too, where that exactly falls in their um, idea of salvation and justification. And then the general priesthood of the laity. Uh, So these three things are like the, you know, the the three touchstones of the Reformed, the Reformation as a whole. And we're going to discuss this starting with the uh, scripture aspect right after this. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So when we look at the idea of Scripture and its place within this new branch of Christianity that's coming up. I mean, this is, this is some... Uh, oops, I'm banging my microphone here. This is some brand new stuff that's happening, okay? People are still kind of wading through it, exactly where things, places are, and, and you know, the the role that it should have. So the Reformed, they were much more radical against human traditions. And, of course, think think about why, as opposed to the Lutheran. Because, I mean, they're coming from a... Very scholastic humanist background. Okay. They are looking at it and saying, well, okay, let's get rid of everything that we don't find in scripture. And some denominations, oh, excuse me, some denominations today will go so far as to say, if it's not explicitly stated in the New Testament, we don't do it at all. It has to be, it can't be. Implicit And a lot of times, those people have a difficult time understanding the difference between prescriptive and descriptive uh, when it comes to uh, hermeneutics. But you have them kind of doing that. So, the Reformed were kind of going that way. The Lutheran, they would say, look, if it's not contrary to what the Bible's teaching, what's the harm in it? You can keep it, okay? I mean, what's the harm in you know, keeping... Uh, let me see if I get to this later on. I don't think that I do. No. Um, what's the harm in keeping uh, statues, iconography, crucifixes, stained glass windows? If people aren't worshiping them, and it's teaching people about the Christian faith who can't read, what's what's the problem here? You know, why just just allow it to happen? Okay, it's not being spoke out against, so let's let it go. Um, the reformers of course push back against that and they would say I mean you know with with the Second commandment and not having any um, idols and and stuff and, and I think that's a misunderstanding of that passage. they would talk about graven images you can't have any of that uh, you know so some churches that you go into don't have any of that stuff in it the stained glass windows are more uh, patternistic uh, geometric they're still beautiful. Uh, Some might have writing on them, but rarely will you see um, any pictures. Uh, The ones that do have pictures are more in this this Lutheran line of of thinking. When it comes to justification now, this is where it started to to split a little bit. Um, The Reformed understanding of justification by faith alone is that it is subordinate to to the ulterior truth of eternal foreordination by free grace. Okay, so it's not as emphasized that it's the faithfulness of Christ that you are being justified by. It's usually loosely defined, and this is why people who are not in a Lutheran tradition that are maybe more in a Presbyterian tradition, have a harder time understanding this. If I bring up about, you know, uh, the fetus qua creditor and the fetus qua creditor and justification by the faithfulness of God alone, um, they inevitably say, oh, are you just talking about predestination? And it's like, well, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about the, the instrumental way that God uh, does things but they would see that as subordinate to the understanding of predestination. And they would, you know, stick it in that uh, that construct. So it's very difficult for them to think outside of that, to kind of separate those two things. Uh, much in the way that Roman Catholics have a difficult time separating um, justification and, and sanctification. Uh, a lot of Reformed people have a difficulty separating the concept of um, you know, for ordination or uh, um, election from the idea of justification by faith alone and and, and what all that entails, so they also um, put a, a greater stress on good works and strict discipline so I think because, and I don't I don't like to say it like this, this, you know, deficiency in their understanding of, of justification. I mean, the way that I've underst- uh, explained in this, this pit, um, justification by faith, and if you've been following, you know, all these uh, theology pits in this series, you have a probably pretty good handle on, you know, faith by which we uh, believe and the faith, you know, which we believe. They, I don't think, had that understanding. They are influenced by this humanist scholastic influence, which ultimately is influenced, in my opinion, by somewhat Pelagius thought. I don't want to lump them in with Pelagius. They're not heretics, but Pelagius philosophy, Manichian philosophy, Gnostic philosophy, Stoic philosophy, going all the way back, that this type of influence... Is then having them lean more in this direction away from articulating, let's say, exactly what God is doing and and what's going on. And because of that, uh, when we get into some later things, sometimes uh, when you press Calvinists on certain topics, they say, well, it's just a mystery. It's just a mystery. Because... Their theology is incomplete, just as, you know, I believe everybody's theology is in one way or another. I've been thinking about, at the end of this podcast series, um, giving what a full explanation of justification would be and the application of the atonement if you were to put all of these views that we've talked about together. And, you know, put them together harmoniously, not changing them, but, you know, adding to them, taking out the deficiencies, but keeping all the, all the positives and what it would look like and what it would be. And I'm still thinking about that and I'm going to try to summarize it. I have to write it out, but I might spit, it might take an entire podcast to talk about it and and discuss it. And it's just something that I'm going to float out there. I don't know, unless I'm really convinced of it, if I'm going to hold to it, but It's something that I'm going to float just for people to think about and to kind of chew on. Okay, with justification, Lutherans, on the other hand, you know, we talked a lot about that. Um, But Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification is the article by which the church and the gospel stands or falls. Without this, this is why he would say, if you disagreed with him, you are not a Christian, If you deny this aspect, you are not a Christian, you are not a church, you are a reprobate, you are going to hell, you are teaching damnable heresies. I mean, he would just go off about it. His understanding of justification was a lot more hardcore in that there is nothing that you do to assist it at all whatsoever. It is completely God. Now, when it came to the priesthood, um, both groups supported it. Uh, the, The Reformers gave a larger scope uh, to the popular lay element um, you know when you with the congregational and uh, synodical self-government that um, yes the you know when our councils get together you know so and, and the councils could be made up of um, like laymen and you know people within the priesthood because of you know what's called the priesthood of all believers um, they would self-support themselves, They could, you know, see the priesthood as being self-supported either by the congregation or they could work somewhere. And um, th- that's just because of this strong humanist and scholastic influence. I think they were some some call them uh, tent making uh, ministers, ministers that have a, uh, a nine to five day job, but then you know, preach on the weekends. So church and state were very close at this time with the, the Swiss reformers. Um, they wanted to control the state by Republican independence, okay? Um, ultimately led to the separation of secular and spiritual powers. They didn't want, you know, the church to dictate to the government and the government to dictate to the church. They wanted to keep those separate. Um, that... a a free church and a free state is what they wanted. Uh, But what's interesting though, uh, and I'll I'll say this, I'll get to that later, but, but this whole idea of a free church and a free state coexisting is what the United States started out as. Then with the German reformation, uh, you had the German reformers. They were um, they had this native reverence for monarchical institutions, and why not? Um, they, you know, Luther was um, protected by princes. He was hired by them in in the seminaries. Uh, he didn't seem to have a problem with it, and ultimately, why? I mean, you know, if if Christ is our high priest and king. You know, we are, as Christians, under a, a kingdom, under a Christendom. Um, the concept of what you see in the Old Testament, you know, you see a lot of kings. This, this whole idea of, you know, there being a type of magisterial ab- above you, it was very palatable to him. He didn't have a problem with it. He taught uh, passive obedience in politics. That, you know, look, we can have influence by changing the hearts and minds of people, but we shouldn't be doing it by force or by violence. And this is where he differed with with Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli very much uh, was, no, we have to take it over and we have to do it by force. He actually died on the battlefield. Um, There's a statue of him where he has a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. So he died uh you know younger than than Luther because of this this whole idea that no God's given us this power and put us in this place that we you know should be uh using our our power to our manifest destiny, if you would say to kind of go in that direction um lutheran's uh sought to brought the brought the church under the bondage of civil authority so The government would have a say in what the churches can and can't do, in a sense, what they can and can't say. But if the magisterial authority is made up of Christians, you really wouldn't have that problem. And that's what the United States is today. Whenever you have people fallaciously saying that pastors cannot talk about politics or the church needs to stay out of government affairs Okay, by, Just by doing that, that is the civil authority telling the churches what they can and can't do, which is wrong. It's not how the United States started out. The United States started out with, yes, the church should have influence over the government because the system that was set up was a Presbyterian Christian model if you take out the religious aspect of it. This is the way it should do. So the church to keep the politicians honest and to keep the government on the right path necessarily need to be involved and necessarily need to be involved in the community and need to have a very strong influence in it. You need Christianity in order to right govern this type of country of of what we're doing. It allows people to worship however they want. But understanding specifically, this is what's necessary, a God-fearing people. And that's just been so perverted today. I mean, when you think about that, like how many preachers are out there from the pulpit, not only preaching against abortion, if you even hear that ever at all, uh, preaching out against abortion, but calling out uh, politicians and telling their people, don't vote for them. You can't vote for them. Christians should not vote for them, and you can't vote for them in good conscience. And even some, like if you had the Roman Catholic Church or something like that, they, they have done this before, withheld communion. Um, they're they're out of fellowship in in that sense of, of these politicians. And people who support them, they would say, you know, you shouldn't take communion either. You are living in sin. And. Politician or, or pastors need to say that sort of stuff. If there's a local politician that's doing something wrong, they should tell their congregation, you should not do this. Um, with the Revolutionary War, you had uh, pastors that would say, we need to rise up against our king, and we need to fight for our freedom and for our independence. And they would do this in the pulpit, and there was one, I, I, f- I forget his name, he's very popular, I really shouldn't, I should go back and look this up. But, um, you know, after giving this... Uh, this, this sermon about why, as Americans, we should be doing this and fight to be an independent nation, took off his robe, his clerical robe, and underneath it was his uniform as an officer in the army and said to the men there, who is with me? And a lot of men from the church funneled out. That's the birth of our nation. And now to say that somehow that's stripped away and that that's not not proper, not right, is, is ridiculous, you know. So, um, religion and, and, and life within the Reformation, within the, the Reformed, um, Calvin focused a lot on discipline and theology, and he established actually a model theocracy in Geneva that lasted for generations. Uh, which was interesting, uh, you know, that was kind of an experiment that was done and it didn't really work out. It, it fell apart. Which is why, you know, number one, uh, man can't establish a theocracy. It can't happen. A theocracy can only be established by God. To think that you can set up a theocracy is not understanding what a theocracy is. Okay, so you can't do it. So people who say that Christians want to you know, make a theocracy in the United States, n- we can't. Only God can make a theocracy in the United States. we can't do it. Um, Luther focused a lot on faith and doctrine, and he left like the practical consequences to the time. He said, "Look, if we just change the hearts and minds of people, eventually everything else is going to change um, but because of that, because of that more i guess I guess kind of not really leading from behind, but that, that more gentle aspect of uh, the faith being more organic and people changing, uh, he bitterly lamented the antinomian uh, disorder and abuse. And what antinomianism is, is people who reject the law, who say the law is nothing. It has no bearing over us. We are not under the law anymore. Now, technically we're under grace, but it's only because of Christ. And Christ didn't destroy the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Paul says that the law is to be our tutor. So in our behavior and our practices, because that emphasis wasn't put on there, that's uh, what Luther was kind of lamenting. Now, at the same time that all this is going on, you have um, the Anglican Church. And the Anglican Church formed a little more independently. Sorry if that sounds like it's something just skipped. I accidentally bumped the mouse and stopped the recording there. Um, but you know, I mean, think about what you have going on. Uh, you have you know these these Germans and Scandinavians and um, you know French and Swiss and everybody not you know paying attention to the pope not paying attention to the church they are forming what's essentially their own church without the the papacy and it, wow that's how's that a possibility that's a completely you know f- novel concept and stuff so in in the book that's actually put out by the Augsburg uh, Fortress Press called Honoring Our Neighbors Faith they have a really good summary of the Anglican Church, and I just want to read this summary with because it doesn't get into a ton of detail, but it will give you a really good primer on what was going on and how they came to be, and then we can talk about them because they are you know very influential at this time or or what's going on at this time so The way that this starts out here is um, Henry VII took over the throne of England in 1485 after a long and bitter civil war, but he did not have a sound legal right to do so. Fearful of another civil war, his son, King Henry VIII, decided that he needed a male heir to make certain his family continued in power. In other words, he wanted a son. But Henry and his wife only had a daughter. So it was that Henry VIII asked the Pope in Rome for an annulment, that is, a setting aside of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Popes had in the past been willing to grant annulments of royal marriages, particularly when the question of heirs to the throne came up. But unfortunately, the Pope to whom Henry appealed was at that moment the political prisoner of the King of Spain, who happened to be Catherine's nephew. The Pope quite understandably, did not wish to offend his captor and refused Henry's request. Henry, thereupon, adopted a different strategy. He won permission from Parliament to become the head of the Church in England, thus making it independent of papal control. Once he had done so, the English Church granted him annulment the annulment he sought. The King's treasury also benefited from the independence of the Church. The very large amounts of money that had formerly gone to the Pope now went to Henry. In 1533, the king remarried and another daughter, the future Elizabeth I, was born to him. His second wife, the famous Anne Boleyn, was executed a few years later for treason, and Henry married a third time. Of this marriage, finally a son was born. When Henry VIII died, his ten-year-old son, Edward VI, succeeded him. Under Edward, the Church of England became strongly under the influence of German and Swiss reformers. Edward was only a boy, and his advisors, chief among them Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, were themselves sympathetic to Lutheran and Calvinist ideas. Under Henry's direction, the Bible had been translated into English, and parts of the Church's services were spoken in English. But under Edward, the use of Latin was abolished. And a Book of Common Prayer was issued and ordered to be used throughout England. In many parts of that prayer book, one can see the evidence of Reformed theology. Now, I was raised Anglican. I have a Book of Common Prayer, and I went through it the other day. And when you read through it, you can see this hybrid in there. You can see a lot of Reformed theology in it, but also a lot of... Catholic theology, Roman Catholic. While Henry was king, there were very few theological changes in the beliefs of the Church of England, but during Edward's reign, the influence of the Reformers was growing. If Edward had reigned for a long time, the English Church might have developed into a Reformed Church. However, Henry... Henry er, However, Edward VI lived only 6 years after coming to the throne. When he died, Henry's older daughter, Mary I, the child of Catherine of Aragon, succeeded him. She was a devout Roman Catholic and during her reign, the Church of England was returned to papal control. Eager to demonstrate her loyalty to the Pope, Mary executed Cranmer and the Book of Common Prayer, the author of the Book of Common Prayer, and burned at the stake two other reforming bishops. When she did, unhappy and unloved by her subjects, the throne went to, when she died, sorry, unhappy and unloved by her subjects, the throne went to Henry's second daughter, Elizabeth I. Probably because of the reign of her half-brother and half-sister had been marked by a great deal of religious intolerance, Elizabeth wanted the English church to make room for both Protestants and Catholics, with neither side dominating. Under the resulting so-called Elizabethan settlement, the Church retained much of its Roman Catholic heritage. Church government, for instance, remained like that of the old days, with bishops, priests, and deacons. A Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments was retained, but certain concessions were made to the Reformers. Fundamental Christian doctrines, such as that of the Incarnation, were carefully retained. On the other hand, the Bible and the services were required to be read in English, not Latin. Clergy was allowed to marry. The Elizabethan settlement did not ease all of the hard feelings. Indeed, even today there are individuals and groups within the Episcopal Church who, like the Reformers and the Roman Catholics of Elizabeth's time, would like to see more of one tradition or the other. The church, however, officially retains both Roman Catholic and Protestant elements, as well as vestiges of its original Celtic spirit. As English colonists came to America, they brought their church with them, although, of course, the pilgrims who settled Massachusetts Bay Colony were Protestant refugees from the religious conflict in in England. After the American Revolution, the American branch of the Anglican Church broke its formal ties with the English Church and became independent national church. This is why, in America, the Anglican Church is called the Episcopal Church, because the Church of England was Anglican, Episcopalian just means bishop-governed. But like other similar offshoots of the English Church in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, for instance, the Episcopal Church remains part of what is called the Anglican Communion, that is, the group of national churches sharing the same historical bond. Given its background, it's no wonder that the Episcopal Church cannot be described by any one particular theological label. These variations of interpretation have come to be considered as quite normal, but its theology is not much different from that of other Christian bodies. The doctrine of the Trinity is central, and Episcopalians use both the Nicene and Apostles' Creed as affirmations of this doctrine. Human beings, according to the Anglican belief, were and are created free, but they have rebelled against their creator. Their rebellion has left them isolated and fearful, unable to get back to God by their own efforts. The Incarnation united the human race with God, and the crucifixion and resurrection overcame the power of humanity's rebellious nature. The Church continues to do the work of God on Earth by continuing uh, the work of Christ. Now, the, the, this goes on to talk about, like, the scripture tradition, um, sacraments, uh, those sort of things, um, and ecumenical participation. What's interesting about the Anglican Church here that, that we have is, especially when you go through the, the Church of Common—or the uh, Book of Common Prayer, you do see that it is what's called, you know, apophatic, that there is a lot of mystery to— um, the, the the sacraments, there's a lot of mystery to the, the faith. It's it's much more laid back, you know. If you want to believe, like, um, some Anglo-Catholics, they're called, uh, that it literally is the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, you're free to believe that. If you want to think that it's more of just a symbol, you're free to believe that, too. It's not a hard and fast, uh, you know, thing there. But here's the thing that that kind of, you know, separates them in a way that um, Luther was not a bishop, okay? Uh, Luther, you know, he's a doctor of theology. He was a monk. He was a priest, uh, but he was not a bishop. Um, Calvin, while he was, you know, ordained... Uh, as as a priest, I would almost want to say lower-level priest, was a scholastic. Zwingli was a, a priest also, but more of a scholastic, more of a humanist, um, more collegiate in that sense. And that's why they wear... Um, More of a if you go to a more I guess more of a traditional quote unquote um, Presbyterian church, the pastors will wear a um, uh, like a a college robe, like a professor's robe, and they don't they're not referred to as priests or father. They are uh, mostly pastors. Where in the Lutheran church, they are wearing the um, priestly. Roman Catholic ceremonial, you know, uh, robes uh, and those sort of things, the vestments. The Anglican Church, they, are, they actually do have bishops. The, they have bishops, and this is what's called apostolic succession, that the apostles, Christ laid hands on the apostles, breathed life into them, and ordained them. And then they ordained the next group, who ordained the next group, ordained the next group. And any bishop today in the Anglican or the Catholic Church could actually trace their lineage back to Jesus himself through an unbroken line of apostles. Or I shouldn't say disciples, apostles, then disciples, uh, that sort of thing, um, to today. And Anglican can do it. And Catholic can do it. And this is why the the Catholics, when wanting to be reconciled and in communion with the Anglicans, they see them as much more of a legitimate church than they do the Protestants. Because how can you even have the sacraments? Like, you know, the, the Catholics who are, or the Anglicans who are much more Anglo-Catholic, they could say, well, you know, that actually... Can transubstantiation can occur because of the apostolic secession and the uh, and you know the, the bishops being there. But there's no way that um the, the Lutherans or the Reformers in any way can be uh, considered legitimate. So that's I mean just kind of an interesting issue, but th- but that went along at the same time that all this other stuff is going on. So this is I think interesting because listen to how. The fullness of of worship and actually the reforming and the fixing of the problems of the Roman Catholic Church has been accomplished in all three of these branches of, we can say, quote unquote, Protestantism, even though, you know, uh, Anglicans aren't really part of the Protestant uh, church or part of the Protestant movement or the the Reformed movement. They are non-Catholic, I guess is the best way you could say it, much in the same way that Eastern Orthodox is non-Catholic, because they weren't part of a, a Protestant anything. So the Reformed, they looked at the simplicity, depending on the personal piety and intellectual effort of the minister and the merits of his sermons and prayers. That's what their worship is focused on. So they will vote for and elect and hire pastors and elect elders and deacons based on this type of of criteria. On what type of intellectual effort are you putting forth? Uh, What kind of sermon? What kind of prayers? What kind of... Because that's what people need. In this, uh, in this group, that's kind of where their focus is. The Lutheran uh, Luther was a poet and a musician. Okay, so he developed a very rich liturgical and hymnal literature. Okay, so if you've ever heard the song like "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God" and just how powerful that is, that's one of Luther's tunes. Just very, you know, you, by getting the 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 gospel and the understanding of. Th- rich theology into the hymns that are sung during the sur- the church service is a good way to teach people, especially if there is high um, illiteracy. And illiteracy, in my opinion, is not just the inability to syllabify words, but it's the inability to comprehend what you read. And I see a lot of um, illiteracy in our day today, uh, you know, be- just because of of that understanding. So. By getting very rich theological songs and hymns into the church, you then uh, are able to educate and and teach people. And that's what Luther brought to it. Anglicans, they produced the best liturgy. And I'm not just saying that. Like, I'm, I'm... getting this quote out of you know one of my church history books. So just because I was raised Anglican and I am kind of partial to it, it's true when you when you look at all the uh, styles of worship, but they produced the best liturgy, which has kept in place to this which has been kept in place to this day with increasing popularity. Um they have they'll sometimes refer to it as high church and low church. High church, the psalms will be sung. Low church they'll be said. But Everything is there. Um, My parents' church that they go to, St. Stephen's Church in Swickley, Pennsylvania, probably one of the most beautiful uh, sanctuaries that you could ever be in. I mean, it is truly wonderful. The liturgy is so rich. So you have the richness of the liturgy that people a lot of times associate with Catholicism. Uh, My wife even calls it like Anglo-Catholic. Um, you know, or, or Episcopatholic, or something like that, uh, because she's like, it just looks like Catholic to me, and, and that's the whole point. It does. It's a, you know, the architecture a lot of time can be Byzantine-style architecture of the church, but you have this full richness of it. Within Lutheranism, you have you know the the striving of the wrestling with theology. That's what he did. That's what Luther did. I mean, within Lutheranism, you get these subtle nuances. You get the depth of the theology and and what's going on. And then with the Reformed tradition, you get the, the 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 piety. You get the discipline. Uh, so you have the orthopraxy in the Reformed church. The orthodoxy. The strong orthodoxy in the. Um, Uh, A Lutheran church. And then you get the perfect worship application in the Anglican church. And I think we need to study all that. And that's why, independently, when I look at these churches, I look at them all as deficient, because it's like they had one thing that was... Yeah, almost completely perfect and it's splintered and when we understand all of those, then that's when we get this understanding of the fullness of what God's doing. Hey, thanks for listening to Theology Pit. I hear the music obviously going on here and um, we're going to continue it with the application of the atonement of Christ and what all that means. Email me, Samson at samsonstick.com or visit me on uh, the Theology Pit on uh, Facebook, samsonstick.com Now it's definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.